Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and is striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. It is with a great sense of anticipation that I get to stand in front of you today, beginning our new series, Studying the Book of Ecclesiastes. Because 20 years ago, God used this book to totally change the direction of my heart and of my life. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say, Ecclesiastes saved my life. And I'll probably tell you some of the story of that at some point today over the next few weeks. But I begin talking about that because I want you to know that for 20 years now, I've been living with this book. I love this book. And it keeps changing me. And one of the reasons that this continues to be one of my favorite books in all of the scripture is that Ecclesiastes is a book that teaches us how to live with wisdom, hope, and joy in a broken world. I mention that because joy is a big theme in Ecclesiastes. And that is the opposite of what I found most Christians think about when they think about this book. When I talk to Christians about the book of Ecclesiastes, the word, if they're familiar with their Bible at all, the word that usually comes out is the word depressing. Ecclesiastes is depressing. And I can understand why you would say that, because this book is filled with 
a lot of heart-rending lament for the reality of brokenness in the world. But what I want to encourage you with is the joy that Scripture tells us about is not a joy that requires us to sort of close our eyes to the pain in the world. We don't have to pretend that the world isn't really broken. We can face the reality of pain, of death, of futility, of chaos, of sin, of evil in the world, and still live with wisdom, hope, and joy. This book is here to help us with that. I want to start by just jumping in to some of the verses in this first chapter that are verses of lament that are causing us to face some of that pain and brokenness. And we can start right here in verse 2. So if you've got your Bible, you're following along. Let's look again at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So you can kind of see why people would think it's a depressing book. The person called the preacher here, I'll come back and talk about this individual in a moment. But first, let's just talk about what he's saying. This word that gets translated vanity is the Hebrew word hevel. And the word literally means vapor or smoke. The word gets repeated over and over throughout the book. This is smoke. That is vapor. The word vanity is an okay way to translate it, but it, it can be somewhat misleading because if he, we read this as saying vanity of vanities, it sounds like it's saying all of life is completely pointless. And that's not quite what it really is saying. This, the, the image here of vapor or smoke is twofold. First of all, it's telling us that everything is fleeting. Everything is ephemeral. It's there for a little bit and then it's gone. Even the best stuff in life. It's there for a little bit, and then it's gone. Not only that, but much like smoke, it looks, you can see it, and it looks like it's got form, but if you try and reach out and grab it, you come away with a handful of nothing. So the point being made with this metaphor is, everywhere in life, we see vapor, we see smoke, and it's not just talking about the best things. Like one of the themes Ecclesiastes is going to make is if you live your whole life just trying to get money, you'll never be satisfied, you'll never have enough money. That's kind of obvious. But what Ecclesiastes is also going to say is, if you take the best gifts in life, say friendship or a loving relationship, a, a wonderful marriage, it's good. And actually Ecclesiastes wants to help us to enjoy those things rightly as gifts from God. But what it's saying is, is two things. First of all, it's fleeting all human relationships under the sun. That's one of the phrases that comes up a lot in the book, dozens of times. Under the sun. Every human relationship under the sun comes to an end, either because somebody moves away or because the relationship breaks up or because we die. They're fleeting. Not only that, if you try to build your life and find ultimate meaning and purpose and significance in life based on that relationship, you will find the relationship is not built to sustain that weight. Even your marriage. My wife's sitting at the back of the room here. I love her. We've been married for almost 15 years now. It's great. If she puts on me the weight of giving meaning and significance to her life, she's going to find me incredibly disappointing. That relationship isn't built to 
to give ultimate significance. And only by recognizing that can she come to enjoy and I come to enjoy that marriage for the great gift that it is from God. So we're starting out with this word hevel. You learned a Hebrew word today. Everybody say hevel. Everything is fleeting, even the best stuff and and everything under the sun, everything that we see in this mortal life. Even if it's good, is not capable of giving ultimate meaning to our lives. We skip down a bit. Drop your eyes down to verse eight. We read this. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. All of life is exhausting. And as we exhaust ourselves, wear ourselves out, every now and then we stop back and say, I'm wearing myself out for what? And as we try and answer that question, we seem to never quite reach the goal that we were going for. We're never quite satisfied, are we? I wake up, I make my bed, I go to sleep, and the bed gets wrinkled again. Right? Cycles. Or the bigger ones that this text is talking about. Here's a cycle. Human beings are born, they live, they die, and then they're forgotten. So that's connecting verse 8 with verse 11. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Human beings live, they're born, they live, they die, and they're forgotten. To help illustrate this cycle, this cyclical nature of human existence, the text points us to natural cycles. The sun rises and it sets. It rises and it sets. It rises and it sets. It rises and it sets. It's been doing that for millennia. And it hasn't changed. The water cycle here, right? The, the water in the ocean gets evaporated. becomes clouds. The rain falls down. That water goes into rivers, overground rivers or underground rivers, and it flows back into lakes and oceans, and then it gets evaporated again. It just keeps going and going and going. The text is using those cycles to say human life is exhausting, and if you look around under the sun, it feels like we're doing all this effort and we're never getting anywhere with it. At the individual level or the generational level, human beings are born, we live, we die, we're forgotten. Same thing plays out a bit more slowly at the level of human civilizations, human cultures. They're born. Every human culture and civilization is filled with beauty and potential because every human being is made in the image of God. But they grow, they grow. And before long, the weight of sin and folly either causes that civilization to collapse in on itself or causes it to war with other generations and they rise and they fall and they rise and they fall. Now, this for modern people, we might want to argue with this because it's like, doesn't Solomon or whoever wrote this book know about the Internet? Does he know about technology? We tend to think of ourselves as like in a, in a historical trajectory that gets better and better. We're moving up. We imagine history as a line, right? Technological advancement. Well, the person who wrote this book was not naive about technological advancement. I get it. The Industrial Revolution was a big deal. The Internet is a big deal. It changed human culture, human civilization. But we're not the first generation to experience cultural and technological change. I mean, can you imagine going from the Neolithic 
to the Paleolithic era of human history? Here's what happens if you live in the Neolithic era. You wake up, you find a club or a big rock, you get some buddies, and you chase a caribou all day. Try to hit it on the head, then you get to eat dinner and feed your family. All of a sudden, Paleolithic. And by all of a sudden, I mean a long time later. I mean Neolithic. I think I said that backwards. But now, what do we do? Well, we've got some better tools. We learned how to plant stuff. So in the morning, we practice gardening. So in the evening, we can sit around with our friends and invent human civilization. That's way different, right? The, the person who's writing this text is a descendant of Abraham, the nomad who wandered around in tents and took care of goats. And now he's at the center, as we'll find as we read through the book. He's at the center of a really complex culture. He lives in a palace. There's temples, the religious life, the intellectual life is complex. The economy is complex. So he's not saying nothing ever changes at all in human history. But what he is saying is all that technological and cultural change cannot change the fact that human beings are born, they live They die and they're forgotten. Human civilizations are born. They live. They die and they're forgotten. And if we talk about our technological age, I mean, if there was ever a year to alert us to the fact that we haven't quite conquered nature. Here we are in the year 2020. On one hand, I got a lot of friends on the other end of this camera I'm looking into right now who are watching because we're connected on the Internet. Thanks be to God to that technology. Thanks be to God for medical technologies. Aren't you glad to live in a time with air conditioning? It's wonderful. On the other hand, I'm in a room with a bunch of friends who are sitting far apart from one another wearing masks while the other half of our congregation is at home looking at the Internet. Because not only have we not conquered the universe of microbes, but the same technologies that have us living together in densely packed cities and connected by transportation technologies, has created a great ecological environment for microbes to spread and cause pandemics. And so we are humbled. Not only that, in our technologically progressive mindset, we have a sort of arrogant disdain for the past, so that even though our life expectancy is longer than it used to be, this cycle of living, dying, and being forgotten actually happens faster in our time than it used to. Because in the time when Ecclesiastes was written, many of the people who read this text might have been able to name their ancestors back 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 generations. Most of the people in this room can't name their great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather. And what I'm trying to say is if, if you and I don't know the name of our great-great-grandfather, it's possible that when our great-great-grandkids are walking around in the world, nobody will know who we were. We live. We die. And we're forgotten. I don't know why anybody thinks this is a depressing book. (laughs) Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I quote that verse all the time. Over the last several months, I've been in several board meetings trying to figure out three or four different organizations. How do we navigate and accomplish our mission in the midst of a pandemic? And we make a plan, and then we acknowledge that that's probably not going to work, and we make a backup plan, and then we make a backup backup plan, and then we say our prayers and say, we have no idea what's going to happen because what is crooked cannot be made straight, what is lacking cannot be counted. You can't fix it. In parenting, there was a moment this morning where with some of my beloved, precious children, I was trying to navigate the human heart and the interactions, interpersonal conflicts that were happening, and I thought, what is crooked cannot be made straight. I can't solve this. There's a lot of problems in life that we can't solve. 
Ecclesiastes is not going to say, so just kick back and relax and don't try and fix anything. Actually, it's going to teach us to do our work vigorously with wisdom and leave the results in the hand of God. But here's the thing. If we live and die in Christ, we know our labor is not in vain. But when we die, the world will still be broken unless Jesus has come back. Because there's only one person that can solve all the problems. It's not me. It's not you. Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The writer of this book was not good at advertising. Because this is a wisdom book. Recently, I was on a Zoom call with a few other Christian leaders and a Christian editor. And she was trying to get us to write a book. And she sent me an email with a book proposal. And one of the things you're supposed to do on the book proposal is write the little blurb that goes on the back of the book. And it's supposed to be compelling so that people can will buy the book. Right? And I haven't written it yet because I don't know how to sell books. I'm still thinking about that. I'm praying about it if we're supposed to do that. But this morning, I just thought, what if on the back of the book I just wrote, if you read this book, you will increase in vexation and sorrow. That wouldn't sell. But here's a wisdom book. And when we get to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, it's going to become very clear. This book says you should pursue wisdom. Seek wisdom. The opposite of wisdom is folly. You don't want to be foolish. Pursue wisdom, but you need to understand if you get all the wisdom that God has for you, the world's still going to be broken. It's not going to make you immune to the pain of human life. As a matter of fact, you're going to see it more clearly and your heart is going to be sensitized to the pain and brokenness of the world. For all that, here I am to say to you stubbornly, this is not a depressing book. This is a joyful book. Let me try to show you how this works with two illustrations. Okay. Illustration one. Think of your life like this. You're in a great big hallway. And all down both sides of the hallway, there's doors. Can you see them on your left and on your right? Lots and lots of doors. You can't see the end of the hallway this way. You can't see the end of the hallway that way. You can go into one of those doors to decide uh, what the meaning of your life is going to be. You pick the door. Walk up and down. You decide, what is my life going to be about? Some people came here today asking the question, what is the meaning of my life? What is my life supposed to be about? If you didn't come here asking that question, I hope you will leave here asking that question. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard made the statement that Ecclesiastes is a book that is designed to awaken you to concern about yourself. If you're just coasting through existence, this book, this book of the Bible is here to shock you into self-awareness and ask, what am I doing with my life? What is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of my life? Okay, so you're in the hallway, you're looking at the doors, and you get to pick which door you go into. That's going to be the meaning of your life. One of them says achievement. And you can peek in, and you can see all sorts of visions of what could be. You could walk across the stage with a great diploma, and everybody's clapping. You could hold up the trophy. You could be in the bank account. You can make the Hall of Fame. Whatever it is you want to do, you could be the best. You think, that one looks pretty good. Maybe I'll do that. But then you open another door, and it doesn't say achievement. It says pleasure. And you open that, and it sees all the desires that you long to have fulfilled, some of which you're afraid to whisper out loud. They're all in there. You open another door, and it says greatness or fame or creative work. That sounds a little bit better. 
You open all the doors, you start peeking in. Some of you say, oh, I get it. This is a book that says don't be too ambitious. But I'm not ambitious. I just want to chill. Check. So you find, oh, here's a door that says comfort. It's got a double padlock. It's made of thick steel. You're supposed to be safe in there. Keep the pain out. You don't have to be pursue greatness. Just live comfortable. And you're looking at all the doors and you're trying to figure out which one to go into. And all of a sudden, this old guy comes out and he looks like he's been beat up by life and you start looking at the door and he says don't go through that one and then you look into another door and he says i spent a decade in that one there's nothing for you there and he opens another one he says don't go through that door and it happens over and over and over again What door are you supposed to go through? Well, this is church. You already know the answer. What door are you supposed to go through? Jesus. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 10, 10, or excuse me, in John just 10, Jesus says twice, I am the door. Works perfect with my illustration. Right? So if if you're here seeking meaning to your life, Go to the Jesus door. That's the short answer. Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Jesus rose again. Jesus can bring you to God. He can give your life purpose and joy and freedom in the way that none of those other doors could. And so then you ask, why don't we just read John? Why do we have to read Ecclesiastes? Well, because here's the thing. We may know what the right answer is in church, but then there's tomorrow morning. And then there's tomorrow afternoon. And then there's the evening. And then there's that hour of temptation when it comes And there's some people here who are spiritually seeking. You haven't decided if you want to trust Jesus. And this joyful book is here to tell you if you go through any other door, death awaits you. But for Christians, here's what we try to do. We we try to peek past Jesus. When you open the Jesus door, it's just Jesus standing there. So we try to peek past him and see what's over there. And all we see is a loving, gracious Lord saying to us, come to me. I'm gentle. My burden is easy. Do you mean I don't have to let anything go? You mean I can still keep this? And Jesus just says, take up your cross and follow me. If you love your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose my life, your life for my sake, you'll find it. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to give your life purpose. We're trying to peek behind him to see where we're going before we go all the way in, right? And so then we start getting creative. Let's take Jesus into that other door with us and see what happens. And the wise old guys, they're saying, don't go in that door. Don't go in that door. Here's another illustration. You want one? Let's switch it up. There's a big table, and on the table is a lot of different cups. And one of them is the elixir of life. Joy, immortality, eternal life. The other one, all of them, they look great. All of them, they taste great. But the other ones will all kill you. They're all poison. If this sounds familiar, yeah, it's that Indiana Jones movie, okay? If you haven't watched that movie, great, this will be fresh for you. And you're looking at them, you're trying to figure out, which one do I drink? And this old guy walks up, and you start to reach for one, he says, don't drink that one. Start to reach for another one. There's only one cup that gives life. Do you see what I'm saying here? The book of Ecclesiastes is here to say to you, there's only one way of life. But here's the amazing thing. 
It's saying, no, don't go through that door. Don't drink that cup. Don't go through that door. Don't drink that cup. First amazing thing, as we'll see more in a second, the guy, the, the old guy who walks up to tell us that is not some stodgy old guy who's afraid of living. He's some old guy who said, I did all of those things. Okay, I did all of them. And they're not going to satisfy here. The other amazing thing is this. We know the right answer is that Jesus, Jesus, you want the Jesus door. You want the Jesus cup. That's the right answer. We know it if we're in church or if we are already confessing and believing in Christianity. If you're watching this and you haven't got to that place yet, that's the argument we're going to be making. That's what the text is proclaiming to you and inviting you to see. But I want you to think about this in relation to Colossians 1.17. I love Colossians 1.17. Here's what it says about Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. What does that mean? To have life, step one has got to be, I die to myself. I die to my plans. I die to any claim to be Lord of my life and say, Jesus, all I want is you. All I want is you. And he does not guarantee to us what that life of discipleship is going to look like in advance. He may cause us to give up the things we're afraid of giving up. No false promises. No false advertising here. If you follow Jesus, he says, take up your cross and follow me. But he does say anything that I ask you to give up, I'm going to give back to you a hundredfold. Which means if you try to build your life on work, then you're going to work, 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 exhaust yourself Wear yourself out and feel empty. But if you build your life on Christ, now work has purpose and dignity. If you try to build your life on finding that perfect marriage, my God, I hope you don't find it. Because there's no way it can hold the weight of those expectations. It's a fantasy. And and your false expectations will crush it. But if you build your life on Christ, then in singleness... In marriage, in sickness, and in health, whatever God has for you, there's joy and there's purpose. And it all holds together in Christ. Now, with a few minutes we've got left today, I want to set the stage for the journey we're going to go on through the book of Ecclesiastes by answering just two questions. One, who is speaking in the book? And two, what are the big themes of the book that help us to keep its message in mind? So I'm going to answer those two questions And that'll be how we finish. First, who is speaking in this book? The speaker is introduced in verse one, but actually there's two speakers in the book. Okay, there's this person called the preacher and then there's the editor. Let's look at verse one again. There's two human voices here, the preacher and the the author. And verse one says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, so that that word preacher is the Hebrew word kohelet which actually means a person who brings people together, presumably to teach them. So you could say the preacher, you could say the teacher, you could say the philosopher. Actually, my preferred word here would be the sage. The sage is the wisdom teacher. And this is a book about wisdom. So the the teacher, the preacher, the sage is never named throughout the book. But person is it says about this person, they're the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, if you go read Samuel and Kings and Chronicles in your Bible, you'll know the son of David, king of Jerusalem, is Solomon. So ancient Jewish tradition held and uh, subsequent Christian tradition also held. This book was written by Solomon, or at least the preacher is Solomon. That's what most Bible scholars have believed. 
More recently, there have been some Bible scholars who have said, well, first of all, the, Solomon is not named here. Second of all, there's some language and some stuff going on in this book that makes a lot more sense if it was written much later, after Solomon. So how do we make sense of that? And there's several different theories floating around. One of them is that the word son here doesn't mean literal son, it means descendant. So there's another later king in the line of David. Another option that people would suggest is uh, this is actually a much later sage, a wisdom teacher in the tradition of Solomon, who's using the persona of Solomon as a teaching tool. Those are a couple options that are thrown out there. I think one way to explain this would be that much of the teaching in Ecclesiastes, the teaching of the preacher, does in fact originate from Solomon, but the editor who puts the book together is much later, a sage in that wisdom tradition. And the the editor is the one speaking in verse 1. He's holding up to us the preacher, perhaps Solomon, saying this is the sage. He's son or descendant of David, king in Jerusalem. And uh, in chapter 2, we're going to find out that this person was incredibly powerful, incredibly rich. If it wasn't Solomon, it was someone a lot like Solomon. Incredibly powerful, incredibly rich. So when this person says that won't satisfy you, it's kind of like, well, you think money wouldn't satisfy you, but... But you don't know. It's like, actually, this guy had a whole lot of money. Or if you're in here and like so many people in our generation, you're, you're in church and you're wanting to be spiritually satisfied in God, but your life feels trapped by various sensual desires and there's just sexual fantasy. And if I could just be satisfied, that would, uh, or if I could just gratify those things, it would satisfy me. Here comes Solomon, ancient Near Eastern potentate. He's got a big harem and he puts his arm around you and says, son or daughter, Everything that you've dreamed of, I did, not with the Internet in real life. There's nothing for you there. There's nothing for you there. It won't satisfy. But then there's this editor. And the editor pops up again at the end of the book and in a very important way. Look with me at chapter 12 if you got your Bible. Flip to chapter 12. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So this isn't the preacher talking, Solomon or whoever the preacher is. Is not speaking here. The, the sage, the, the editor, is talking about the preacher. And he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight. I told you it's about joy. And uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now, I want to point out a couple things. First of all, when he says those words are given by one shepherd, in my ESV Bible, shepherd is capitalized, capital S, indicating correctly it's talking about God. So all scripture is breathed out by God, says 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we think the ultimate author, the ultimate source of this book is God the Holy Spirit, inspiring But God, the Holy Spirit here is inspiring a voice that's working in a complicated way. He's speaking through human authors. And when you read the Bible, listen, it's important to ask, how is God, the Holy Spirit speaking through people? Just think for a second about the book of Job. Anybody read the book of Job? Show of hands. If you read the book of Job, a large percentage of the book of Job is Job's friends saying stuff that is wrong. Right. So if you open the book of Job and just stick your finger in that and read it and say, this is the word of God. Well, that's true, but you might be misinterpreting what it means because God inspired us to have this story with those friends saying stuff that was wrong. And at the end of the story, God shows up and says, all of you were wrong. Right. So that context really matters. And what what God, the Holy Spirit has inspired here is 
a sage has edited and pulled together the words of this preacher who's Solomon or someone like Solomon to uh, show us some really important things about life. And the editor here, inspired by God, is saying every word in this book is from God and it's designed to be a goad. God is a good shepherd. We are the sheep. Do you know what a goad is? It's a pointy stick. Question, if you're a sheep, do you like the experience of being goaded? No, it's being poked with a pointy stick, if that wasn't clear. That's what being goaded means. But the shepherd has the pointy stick to keep you, sheep, from wandering down a path that's going to make you fall off the cliff, to lead you into green pastures. So the book ultimately comes from God, but this editor has collected these things, and at the end of the book, the editor is going to say some really important things about how do we hear the message of Ecclesiastes rightly, because if we read it wrongly, it might cause us to fall into despair to think that all of life is just feels like getting poked with sticks. But the point of the book is to move us towards the door, the right door, the door that gives life. Okay, so much for the question of who's speaking. Now, here's the last question to wrap up our time today. What are some of the big themes that help us understand the overall book of Ecclesiastes? If you're a note taker, you might want to write these down. If you're not a note taker, you might want to rethink that for the next few minutes. Because what I'm about to say can help you have some handles for reading the rest of this book. One big thing, number one. God created a good world, but this world has been horribly broken by sin. Why are there so many false doors? Because sin has broken God's world. Let me just read you a few verses making this point. Ecclesiastes 7.9 says this. Excuse me, 7.29. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Did you hear that? The world was created good by God, but human beings have rebelled against God in a way that hurts one another and that is self-destructive. And there's a sin problem deeply rooted in all of us. We're alienated from God and we go down paths that hurt ourselves and hurt other people because of sin. That's why there's so much hevel everywhere. A few verses before that, Ecclesiastes 7.20 had named the sin problem like this. Here's a sobering verse. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Wow. Notice he does not say, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good. There are lots of righteous people on earth that do good. But what you won't find is one who does good and never sins. So if you go get close to any of your heroes, any of your role models, any of your mentors, if you get close enough, what you're going to find is beautiful things that were placed there by God, plus other stuff. Selfishness, greed, pride, self-destructive sinful tendencies. That's even the best heroes. You could think, yeah, yeah, that's true of most people, but not. And then you name whoever your best hero is. Listen to what Ecclesiastes 3.16 says about this. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Your favorite biblical justice advocate, your favorite pastor, your favorite missionary, your favorite teacher, your favorite person who devoted them lives, their lives to caring for others. If you look close enough, even there, evil, you will find it somewhere. In other words, we're being asked to look at life 
Not with a naive, simplistic, childish way of saying, here's all the good guys and here's all the bad guys. But recognizing what the Bible teaches is true. There's good in every human being because we're all made in the image of God. But all of us have been tainted by evil and sin. And if something outside of us does not rescue us, we're all in big trouble. Which leads to the next point. Next big idea in Ecclesiastes. There's four of these. Here's the second. Only God can save the world So we need to learn to live by hope in God's future work of salvation. Only God could save the world. So we need to learn how to live by hope in God's future work of salvation. Hope is crucial. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. The famous missionary theologian Leslie Newbegin was once asked, are you an optimist or a pessimist? He said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. What did he mean? A pessimist says everything is horrible, so everything's going to be horrible. An optimist says everything is great, so everything's going to be great. A Christian says there's beauty and evil everywhere, but Jesus has defeated it, so I have hope. He's defeated the evil. He's, he's risen from the grave. He's going to make all things new. So we've got to learn to live by hope and not just the little hopes like I hope we find a vaccine in the early spring. That would be nice. But that hope may or may not prove to be hevel, right? And if we do find that vaccine, all of our problems aren't going to vanish, are they? You might ask yourself today, what are the little hopes that I'm putting so much weight on? And this text is saying, look past all those to the big hope. God is going to make all things new. Now, let me read you a couple of text verses about this. I read a second ago, Ecclesiastes 3.16. that said, even in the place of justice, there is wickedness. Read the story about your favorite heroes. They had big flaws. If you get close enough, listen to what the next verse says. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And we need to understand what's being said here. He's saying, if I'm looking for the righteous people to save the world, it won't work. Even if all the most godly Christians become the leaders of all the most influential churches, and if all the most godly Political candidates get all the best government positions. It still won't work. Only God could say, but God is going to deal with everything. And to quote Julian of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. But only when God comes to bring every matter into judgment to set things right. The very last verse of the book, verse 14, says this. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, when we hear that word judgment, we tend to think of punishment and it's being used more broadly here. What it's saying is God's justice is going to come to set all things right. That should make us celebrate and tremble at the same time. If we know Jesus, it makes us celebrate because what, what we know, have you, have you heard the term progressive revelation? This is an important word term for understanding the Bible. Everybody say progressive revelation. That means Solomon knew some stuff that was true, or whoever wrote this book knew some stuff that was true, but we actually know a lot more stuff. So Paul, in the book of Ephesians, can say, look, all the saints of old and even the angels long to look into the mysteries that are now revealed in Christ. What we know is the one who is going to come to make all things new and set all things right already came, and he came in a way we weren't expected God incognito, clothed in humility, service, self-giving love. He died on the cross for our sins so that evil people could be reconciled with the holy God. Then he rose again and said he's coming back. 
So when we read this text, we can read it with hope. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, commenting on this verse, said this. At the last great day, there will be a revelation of everything, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Nor need the righteous fear that revelation. For they will only magnify in that day the amazing grace of which God has put all their iniquities away. And then shall all men know how great the grace of God was in passing by iniquity, transgression and sin. God's going to come back with his justice to set everything right. He's going to reveal every evil thing and every good thing. If we are trying to go through one of the doors besides the Jesus door, that should terrify us because if we're honest with ourselves, we know all of us have participated in the evil of the world. And if we have to bear the consequences of our own life, that's not going to be good. But Jesus already bore the price for our sin. So if we're in Christ on the day when God's justice comes to heal the world and God's mercy comes to heal the world and Jesus returns to make all things new, what we will be doing is marveling at his grace. All my sin has already been paid for. Glory to Jesus Christ. Third main theme in Ecclesiastes. We can't control anything about our lives. Maybe we should just call it 2020 book. We can't control anything about our lives, but we can joyfully receive the gifts that God gives us in the present moment. We can't control anything in our lives. A lot of us have been trying to practice relinquishing control. We hold on too tightly to things and we got to let it up. Ecclesiastes actually has news for you. You don't need to practice relinquishing control. You never had control. What you need to practice is relinquishing, pretending that you had control. Okay? We're not in control of anything. And if we, when we feel like we're in control, of, in control of stuff, we get super stressed out. Right? Because what's going to happen? Can I fix it? And we lay in bed at night thinking, oh, am I going to be able to fix it? Didn't you read chapter 1, verse 15? What is crooked cannot be made straight. You can't fix anything. You're not in control. But when you recognize that God is control in control, instead of fearing or thinking, can I handle it? What you learn to do is open yourself to the gift of God in the present. Especially, Ecclesiastes is going to say, the gift of loving relationships with human beings and the gift of meaningful work. There's about five passages in this book that make that point. Let me quickly read to you two of them, just so you can get a taste of this at the onset. Here's Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. It says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. Now, we're not being naively optimistic because we just use the word toil, right? But what it's saying is enjoy food, enjoy drink, find joy in the work God has given to you to do. Listen to what it continues to say. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity, hevel. It's a striving after the wind. Now, that last little bit, don't misunderstand. Ecclesiastes is definitely not saying if you're good, you're going to have joy and good food and good work. And if you're a sinner, well, life's going to be filled with vanity. Ecclesiastes is very clear that whether you're good or bad, life's going to be filled with vanity. But what he's saying right here is the foolish, sinful person keeps striving and grabbing and reaching and trying to find meaning and significance in something other than knowing God and enjoying God and walking with God and 
being in Christ. But the righteous person says, God is in control. God's going to make all things new. I am a child of God. I want to be open to whatever God has for me in the present and the future so that all the good gifts that come my way, I can receive them with joy and thanksgiving. I don't have to try and grasp them and hold on to them. I just receive them for what they are. And all the good work God puts in my path, the opportunity to do good in the world, to love people, to do something meaningful, to be creative, I receive it with joy. Doesn't that sound wise to you? Chapter 9, here's one more, verse 7 through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy. I told you it's a book about joy. Everybody say joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. So many Christians get stressed out when they feel joyful. It's kind of like, are you reading the book? God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Learn how to celebrate, is what it's saying. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy the life with enjoy life with the one whom you love all the days of your hevel life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil out which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. What he's saying is what we know, what we can see within human existence is we're born We live, we die, we're forgotten. But what we know by faith is that God is sovereign over that. He's gracious. He holds the future in his hand. So instead of either despairing or wearing yourself out, trying to be satisfied with things that will never satisfy or trying to um, make a meaningful impact in the world that won't work. Instead of doing any of those things, receive life as a gift from God. Receive all the simple pleasures of life with gratitude in your heart and then be ready to work Love, sacrifice, serve, build, create with joy, knowing that God's got the present and the future in his hands. Finally, the life of wisdom involves joyful, reverent, enthusiastic obedience to God as we await his coming salvation. So trying to bring those other three themes together and connect them now, Ecclesiastes calls us to live with vigor and with reverence. To be in awe of the mystery of God. And to embrace the life and energy of God in the way that we live. Let me read you the last verses again. I read you verse 14. I'm going to read you 13 and 14. Here's the editor speaking. I told you at the end of the book, the editor is going to say, okay, you just heard from the preacher. Now let me tell you what to do with this. And here's how he ends the book. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, our English language translation includes various words here that we have baggage with. So the word fear, the word duty, and the word judgment. None of those make us happy or excited. So let me paraphrase what's being said here. You've just heard that this door and that door and that door and that door will lead to destruction. You've just heard that this cup and that cup and that cup and that cup will poison you. Here's the point. That door leads to life. This door has life. And what is this door? The fear being talked about here is the filial fear as opposed to servile fear. Servile fear is the fear of a slave. If I don't do this, I'm going to get beaten. Filial fear is the Christian way of talking about I love God so much that I fear anything that would interrupt my intimacy with God. Fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. I love God so much. I cherish this relationship 
with God so much. I don't want anything to come in between him. So there's this awe and this reverence before the Holy One. God satisfies my soul. God is good. He's what I want. And I want to stay far away from anything that would offend him or that would hinder my intimacy with him. And what I want to do is, is obey him. His words are the words of life. So I want to live every day walking out the mercy and wisdom and love and justice of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that with hope, knowing that even when it's frustrating, even when it's disappointing, I can, I can know Jesus is going to return with glory to make all things new. Now, to finish our time today, I want to connect those truths with the New Testament. We've got to learn how to read the whole Bible in relation to the, all the rest of the Bible. And Ecclesiastes, one of the passages that it always makes me think about is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying the first thing, the main thing that you need to know is this. God became flesh, lived among us, died on the cross for your sins. You can be forgiven and reconciled with God as a gift. All you have to do is trust in Jesus Christ. If you do that, God will forgive you. But Jesus also rose from the grave. And the fact that Jesus rose from the grave is really important. The resurrection of Jesus jump-started a resurrection movement in human history. Those cycles of death that Ecclesiastes was talking about has been interrupted by Christ. Something new has entered the world. His name is Jesus. And he rose from the grave, and now his grace has been unleashed. We're already sharing in the resurrection of, of Christ if we've trusted him, but one day we will rise bodily from the grave to live with Jesus in new creation. If we've trusted him, if you haven't trusted him, the word is trust him. You want in on that resurrection hope. And from that perspective of imagining the resurrection life of God's people with Christ in a new creation, Paul ends this chapter with these words. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Did you hear that? Your labor is not in vain. Vanity doesn't have to define you. Why? He's, he's not finding fault with Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was all about under the sun, everything was vain. Humans cannot save themselves, but God has saved us. And God saved us by becoming human. Christ. The hope of resurrection. So when he says, because you're going to rise with Christ, everything's not in vain. He's giving us a hope that we cannot see empirically. We have to receive it on faith. But the hope is this. A billion years from now, when you and I are doing whatever we do with Jesus in the new creation, and our lives are filled with bliss beyond what we could imagine, and everyone who has died in Christ is reunited and all the nations, every ethnic group on earth loves each other and all the baggage of pain in human history has been healed and we're rejoicing with Jesus, we will be able to look back from that billion year from now perspective and see every ounce of obedience to God, every tiny effort to love somebody was worth it. And it was all part of God's plan. Jesus promises not to waste one ounce of our obedience. In Christ. Our labor is not in vain so that we can truly say what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Put that in the register of Ecclesiastes. It sounds like this. Even though life is vain, 
even though there's heaven everywhere, even though there's death and evil everywhere, every day of my life I can have joy and I can have love because Christ is with me and I have the hope that one, thing, one day I'll be with him enjoying bliss beyond what I can imagine now. He's going to make all things new. So when I read this book 20 years ago, I was in high school and was living for a lot of stuff. Young people, you need to hear this. I'm looking back to all the people that came with me. You awake, Infinity? You back there? You good? He's, he's, a, he's alert. He's taking notes over there. I was in high school. I was living for lots of stuff. The, the door, if you, if you know me, you're not surprised. The door I was trying to get into was not the comfort door. It was not the ease door. More like the ambition door. The greatness door. Big schemes. First person ever to be in the NBA, NFL while being a world famous rapper. You know, big plans for my life. And uh, I was working hard. And I, I said that with my tongue in cheek. But for real, I was working hard at academics. I was working hard at sports. Wanted to do something with my life. Wanted to be somebody. And I remember reading this book of Ecclesiastes. And God was goading me. A loving shepherd was poking me. And I remember one night in particular just waking up. I think it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And I woke up like a cold sweat. I just felt exposed before God. And it was like a loving voice from heaven said, John Mark, I love you and you're wasting your life. And do you know where God led me from there? He led me to Philippians 3. Where the Apostle Paul said, Everything that was my gain, I now count a loss for the sake of Christ Jesus. Everything is trash compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And God used this to set a fire in my heart. As a young man, I just wanted to read the Bible. I wanted to pray. I wanted to share the gospel. I wanted to know God, because only in Christ is our life not in vain. This is the gift of the gospel. It's the gift we're about to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Right now, I want to pray for you that as we enter into this journey of the book of Ecclesiastes over the next few weeks, we would find in Christ a life that is fullness of joy and is not vain. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. I thank you for all that you have done and are continuing to do through this book in my own heart and life. I feel my own inadequacy as a human instrument to communicate all that you have spoken here. But I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would take this word and plant it in our hearts. Pray anybody who's in, with us in this room or who's watches, watching this message on the internet, anybody who really has been going into one of those wrong doors and who feels trapped and who feels empty, that right now they would hear the call of your Holy Spirit saying, come out, come to Jesus, find life. And I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters, Lord, that you would use this text to teach us wisdom. That we would embrace the fullness of who you are and what you want to give to us in Christ. Not try to chase down life somewhere else. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.